Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and warm welcome to the July meeting of SUFON. Now, as usual, our talk will be divided into two halves with a Q&A at the end. A reminder that there's a donations box at the back if you feel that way inclined. Uh, now, some of you will remember tonight's guest speaker as he graced us with his presence on a previous occasion in September 2016. Didn't realise SUFON had been going that long. And then he discussed the Bister abduction case. Uh, there will, of course, be those of you who haven't had the pleasure. So tonight's guest is none other than Mr. David Hodrian, who's the founder, chairman, and lead investigator of Birmingham UFO Group. It's probably the largest group of its kind in the Midlands, I would have thought. Uh, in fact, we've had the pleasure of addressing their group on a couple of occasions as well. Now, Dave's the United Kingdom's Deputy Representative for the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research. And he's a regular contributor to Truth Magazine, which you're all familiar with. And uh, previously wrote for UFO Matrix and Paranormal Magazine. And he's spoken at many conferences and appeared on radio and television, as no doubt you probably were. Uh, similar to our own group, he's a prolific investigator of sightings and contact experiences, which he's been for, doing for about 15 years, somewhere around there. Uh, one of the aspects of contact Dave is particularly fascinated in is screen memories. Now, this is where the beings encountered appear to mask either their own appearance or the appearance of their craft. So it's on this topic that tonight Dave will present a highly informative lecture, taking you through the phenomenon in depth. Now you're going to find out about the science behind screen memories. You'll learn about the many different types of screen memory that can occur, and see some incredible case examples as well. You'll also explain about the various possible explanations for what is taking place. There'll be drawings, pictures, video clips, so, if you're familiar with the subject, prepare to learn a lot more than what you already know. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. David Hodrian. Thank you.
Well, good evening, Stefan. How are you all doing tonight? Good, good. good. Very good. I think you're out there somewhere. <laughs> can see rough silhouettes of people. Um, yeah, as, uh, as Steve said, uh, I'm the uh, chairman and lead investigator for Birmingham UFO Group. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be back, especially after the uh, crazy last couple of years. Uh, UFO groups around the country have all been suffering because of the, uh, because of the lockdown and everything involved with it. Uh, I got Birmingham UFO Group uh, started back up last September and luckily the community's grown uh, again, just as it's clearly done here Swan, uh, down in Swansea. And it's absolutely great to see. Uh, because I can count on two hands probably the amount of dedicated UFO organisations around the UK today, uh, few and far between I would say. Uh, so you've got something very special going on here with the regular group meetings because there's many groups out there who don't do the active community side of things, they just put everything online uh, and it's, it's really great to talk uh, with you all tonight. Uh, so uh, as Steve mentioned, I've got a particular interest in the contact phenomena um, commonly referred to of course as alien abductions. Now I'm sure as a UFO group uh, that won't require much introduction. In fact a few of the slides in the, uh, in the early part of the talk you may think oh, I know all this already, okay what's new here. Uh, but I've always had a particular fascination with uh, uh, some of the more complex aspects of the contact phenomena and one of those uh, is of course screen memories. We're going to be delving into that in quite a lot of depth um, and there'll be some new information that you won't have heard before. Uh, and also, many of the cases uh, within this talk are based on my own uh, personal cases that I've specifically investigated. So unless you're, unless you're dedicated and regularly checking the Birmingham UFO Group website, uh, this will be a lot of uh, new information for you here tonight. So uh, let's get started. So behind the mask and analysis of the screen memory phenomena, first going to give you a bit, a bit of an overview on, uh, on screen memories. Uh, looking at the science behind it. Uh, then we'll uh, look at the various different types of screen memories uh, that can occur. Uh, as Steve mentioned, it can occur with both the beings and also their craft. Uh, there's going to be a substantial section where I'm going to delve into a lot of the different case examples, showing many different types of screen memories that have occurred in those cases. Uh, and then we'll look at the possible explanations for screen memories. Now you may have your own personal opinion already on why uh, they're occurring and what's going on with it, but it's actually quite complex and it might be multiple things at once, so we're going to delve into all that. And there'll be some conclusions at the end. So let's get started. Screen memories, an overview. So what are screen memories? Well, the, uh, the official meaning, the scientific term for screen memory is this. It's a distorted memory generally of a visual rather than verbal nature. What do we mean by that? Well, the term was first coined by this chap, the uh, famous Austrian neurologist, Sigmund Freud, who many of you will have uh, heard, heard of before, uh, quite famous. And he released a paper right back in 1899 entitled Screen Memories, and this was the first official scientific paper delving into the screen memory phenomenon. Uh, this is a quote from that paper. Uh, the falsified memory is the first that we become aware of. The essential elements of an experience are represented in memory by the inessential elements of the same experience. Quite a mouthful. Uh, so what this means is that there is in general no guarantee of the data produced by our memory. That's quite a scary thought if you think about it. It means that things that you think have happened in your past that you think you're remembering clearly, you may be remembering wrongly, there might be some aspects to them that weren't actually what took place. And it can be sometimes more dramatic than others. 
A screen memory is a thought to be a blend of two things, uh, repression and transference. A repression is the unconscious exclusion of difficult or unacceptable memories, impulses, desires or thoughts from our conscious, uh, from our conscious mind. And transference is the transfer of feelings regarding something onto something else, regarding a thing onto, an, onto another thing. So screen memories are often served as a source for artistic creation. Uh, this, is a, this, is a, this animated gif is themed on Lewis Carroll's uh, famous novel, Alice in Wonderland. Now there's many aspects of screen memories that link into that. If you remember the story, when Alice goes down the rabbit hole, she's, uh, she meets lots of characters that are normal things from life. Take, for example, the caterpillar and the playing cards, uh, the playing card guards. And um, this animated gif I found online, it's, it's only after I put it in here that I realised its similarity with the, uh, the little mushroom houses down here and of course flying saucers. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, just one example of how, how screen memories have, have been utilised in storytelling. And there's many others out there. But how do screen memories relate to the contact phenomena specifically? Well, individuals have experienced contact, they sometimes recall visual aspects of those experiences uh, incorrectly. And we know this from studying many, many cases where screen memories don't occur. So we know what's expected to happen, and we can see where things don't fit in with that. And a lot of the time, you find that a lot of the experience is what's expected to happen, and there's certain aspects of it that, uh, that aren't right. Uh, so the appearance of the beams, the craft exterior, or the craft interior, when people are abducted and taken aboard, they can be masked by the beams. Uh, well, well, we'll wait and see. It doesn't always occur, it only happens in certain cases. I've dealt with lots and lots of contact cases from around the world and quite often there are no screen memories at all uh, involved in those experiences. It also appears to be more prevalent in childhood. Uh, we've noticed in a lot of cases that uh, screen memories occur uh, when, uh, when a contactee is uh, of a younger age and sometimes when they get older the screen memories stop and then, again there might be multiple reasons for why that's happening. Uh, it can sometimes occur for a period of time before ceasing, so people might experience screen memories for a number of years and then all of a sudden they'll stop. And sometimes they can even restart again later on, which is very interesting indeed. Uh, and it can also be referred to as overlays or stealth encounters. So if you hear that either of those two terms in the world of ufology, that's what uh, they're referring to the same thing essentially. So let's have a look at the different types of screen memories that can take place. Uh, first of all, we've got our beams, this of course being a, uh, a grey on the left. Uh, you'll, uh, I, I'd imagine, coming down to a UFO group regularly, you'll be familiar with the different types that are, are most commonly reported with contact. Um, Sidetracking away from the talk, uh, uh, you've, you've said, see there in the title, I've put the word ET down. Um, my personal belief or viewpoint is that these beings are more than likely extraterrestrial. I also believe that they, uh, they have very advanced multi-dimensional capabilities. Uh, that's just my own personal opinion. There's nothing set in stone with the UFO subject. There's all sorts of different theories out there for many different aspects. And one of the ones that's regularly uh, discussed is of course the origin of where these, where these beings, if they exist, where they're, where they're coming from. And there might be multiple things going on with that. So there's no, there might not be just one single straightforward answer. And you might have views that are totally different. And I don't want to impose my views onto you at all. I, I tend to stick, when I, when I investigate cases, I tend to stick with what the facts tell me, what I've been told by the witness, and I put out that information. I may say how it relates to certain aspects and maybe, maybe viewpoints that I may express myself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100% true. 
So I just wanted to put that out there. But anyway, yeah, back to the beings. Let's see what they can appear as. So they can appear as uh, animals of various types. Uh, they can sometimes appear as human doctors or surgeons. They can appear as pilots. Interesting there, the, uh, the flying craft. So maybe that's why, but we'll see. They can sometimes appear as fictional characters, like characters that have a known story, or maybe wearing a costume, like a pirate costume or a ninja costume or something like that, something recognisable, as Santa Claus, for example, as well. Uh, so uh, figures of authority, um, so they can sometimes appear as police officers or firemen, that sort of thing, or soldiers. Uh, they can sometimes appear as clowns or carnival staff, quite creepy, don't they? Uh, they can sometimes appear as something very familiar to the individual, like one of their own family members. Uh, and then also, they can sometimes appear as something I've termed silhouette. Uh, we'll get to that, and I'll explain what I mean by that in, in more detail. So, with our craft. Classic, lovely picture of a uh, flying saucer there. Nice, nice piece of art. So the uh, craft, when they're seen uh, from the ground uh, externally, they can sometimes be remembered as normal aircraft like helicopters or aeroplanes. Uh, they can also sometimes, very strangely, be remembered as ground vehicles like trucks or lorries moving around. Now this might be because the craft has potentially landed on the ground at that, at that point, but maybe not always. Uh, inside the craft, when people are taken aboard, uh, they can recall seeing a hospital or a surgery. Uh, or something familiar to them, like maybe the, the, the contents of their own home, but they're aware that there's something not quite right. Uh, seeing beyond the mask. So hypnotic regression, it can be used uh, to, uh, to look into contact experiences. Now, it's a very controversial uh, angle of the subject. Uh, I work with a uh, hypnotic regressionist in Birmingham who assists me with, uh, with contact cases because he's got an interest in the subject himself. And um, sometimes, under, under regression, an individual can recount details that they can't consciously re uh, remember. Now, some scientists will say that those details are just uh, filled in, the, essentially the brain, filling in the gaps for what it expects to see. And sometimes, if the individual's had a, a big interest in the UFO subject, that might entirely be the case. We, we can never tell whether it's real or not, but I've sat in on enough regressions that I think that sometimes they do work uh, very well indeed. Uh, and the hypnotherapist doesn't leave the individual or make sure that they don't leave them with any questions. It all comes from the individual who's hypnotized. Uh, but it's a way of sometimes breaking past um, screen memories. So under this induced regressive state, they relive what's taken place and they can sometimes recall these uh, lost memories. And when a screen memory is involved, they may, they may partially or fully see past that screen memory and see the being as it's, as it's supposed to be and realise that it's a mask to this, um, or, the, or the craft, of course. And now this was referenced in the abduction-themed horror movie, The Fourth Kind. Uh, many of you seen that? Hands up if you've seen Fourth Kind. Okay, oh, not many of you. Okay, uh, this came out probably a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't feel like that long ago. At least ten years ago, I think. Um, essentially, they looked at the contact subject and put a bit of a horror slant on it, so kind of a bit like Blair Witch Project. Uh, it was very, very well done. It was very believable. There was a, there was a number of regressions in, in the, in the uh, film that are so believable uh, that they look like the real thing. Uh, some people actually believed this was a real case and actually contacted me afterwards asking for my opinion on this particular case in the film, and I had to tell them it didn't happen. The actual case that happens in the film is not real, but it is based on other contact experiences, so they've included quite a lot of uh, elements of UFO law in the film. 
Now you can see the front cover of the uh, movie here, this, uh, this owl. Uh, with the uh, with the classic uh, black grey eyes there, and this was uh, directly relating to uh, owl screen memories, which sometimes occur. Uh, I've got a uh, little clip of it here, where you'll actually see one of the regressions from the film with this uh, with this owl uh, sinking into it. These Things might be a bit creepy with my talk. I'll just put that out there. Um, so, yeah, let's have a look at uh, our first type of screen memory now uh, animals, uh, where I'll actually reference the, the owl and other things. So, as I said, the ET is primarily the greys, seemingly, will sometimes appear in the form of a known earth animal. Uh, owls are quite commonly reported, and that's why they were utilised in the film. Uh, but there can also appear as many other different types of animals uh, wolves, dogs, cats, deer rabbits, insects uh, have been reported, and, uh, and other species as well. It's a very famous case where the, uh, where the man involved, uh, Mike Oram, sorry, a, a tiger in his childhood. Some of you may uh, know Mike and may have even talked to you over the years. Uh, so the animal can sometimes appear unusual. So for example, it could be an insect, but it's absolutely massive in size, uh, or a, uh, a mouse that's standing on its hind legs, uh, this sort of thing. So there's aspects of it that don't fit uh, a, a normal earth animal, but it essentially the appearances of one. Uh, and sometimes it can be recognisable, such as the individual's own pet of their, of their family. Let's go and look at some actual cases now. And I'm going to take the third case here involving, uh, involving owls. Uh, this is an early case uh, that I investigated right back in 2011. Uh, and I started investigating in very early 2008, so this was in my early years of investigation. And it was a good case from Erlington in Birmingham. It involves a lady named Rachel. Uh, by the way, if I give people's names, they, the witnesses expressly allowed me to reveal their first name and sometimes their full name. Uh, I, I always keep the witnesses' um, uh, wishes uh, paramount, so sometimes I use pseudonyms, and I'll let you know if it is a pseudonym, but I think most of the time it's the real names in it. So, um, a little side anecdotal story to this. Um, Rachel seemed to have predicted in, that, in advance working with Birmingham UFO Group on a case. And what happened with this is um, when I went across uh, the house to, uh, to sit down and just go through all the details with her, um, I, instead of referring to my group as Birmingham UFO Group, I called it Bufog, which is what we are for short. And as soon as I said that, she was like, oh my God, yeah? Uh, there was this just reaction from her. And she goes over to this drawer and she pulls out a piece of paper and it's got the word Bufog on it, yeah? She told me that she'd written it down about a year before and had no idea what it meant. She thought maybe it was like bullfrog or something like that, <laughs> and she didn't know what it meant. And as soon as I told her, she was like, that's it. And, uh, and it seems that she'd psychically predicted that I was going to be working with her on a case. Now, this is not uncommon at all in the world of contact, as many of you will know. There's a, a psychic kind of element to the contact phenomena. And in over the half the cases I've investigated, that's a hell of a lot of cases, uh, the individual has expressed one or more uh, sixth sense type abilities, seemingly. Uh, quite often, uh, premonitions of future events. And it's not always something big, like a train crash or something like that. It can sometimes be really random, mundane things, but they're absolutely aware that it's happened, and then later on. And we're talking like way more than deja vu here, so we're not discussing just kind of 
a little snippet and they think, oh, I've seen that before, because we all have that from time to time. This is way more, um, way more impressive than that. So it looks like there was a, a premonition involved there. Back to her case. So in her childhood years, she had uh, repeated memories of seeing this white owl staring her in, uh, right up in the face as a drawing she did for me uh, on request. Uh, and it used to really frighten her. She actually wouldn't go to bed uh, because she was scared she'd see the owl. And it used to appear just in the phase of she was just starting to settle down, but before she dropped off to sleep. And she'd just see it clear as day in front of her. And it's very, very likely this was flashbacks to contact experiences. Not necessarily one she was having right there and then when she saw the owl. Uh, she may have been having flashbacks to previous uh, experiences that had occurred in that environment. It's very, very common for contactees when they're in the same environment where they've had experiences to have flashbacks to previous things, which um, is, well, not at all surprising, really, is it? So it's likely to be visitation or abduction related. Uh, and she actually uh, recounted some actual abductions with me in depth, which we'll go through uh, one of those in a bit, in fact. <coughs> Here's an another completely separate case here. So this is from West Scotland, and this time it involves a mother and uh, two daughters. Uh, back in 2004, her youngest daughter, she used to play with Sylvanian families, the, uh, the uh, famous uh, range of toys. Uh, this is the uh, family of owls you can see up there, don't look cute. Um, and, uh, but on repeated occasions, her daughter recalled seeing large versions of these owls sitting in her room at night. Uh, so they'd be, they wouldn't be like four for hire or anything, they'd be the size of owls. But you can see that she's drawn them there, and you can see the, uh, the clothing similarities. So she tried to draw that. So essentially, she was using owl-sized Sylvanian family things that, that would appear, and they would sit on the top of a wardrobe. And then as, they look, as she looked at them, they'd take off, and they'd fly towards her face. And as they, as they come across the room, she'd black out, and that'd be the last memory she'd have. She'd come round, and it'd be the following morning. Uh, as many of you will know, blackouts uh, involving contact, very, very... Um, very uh, regular, that's reported, and it's probably very much directly linked with uh, the missing time phenomena. So usually following the blackout, they might have a period of missing time they can't account for. Um, so it may have been abductions, or again, might be flashbacks. We don't really know. But yeah, certainly it appears to be a screen memory there. Another case here. This one's a very interesting one. It's from New South Wales, uh, Belina. Uh, again, it involved a mother and her two daughters, completely different family. Mother's name is uh, Eloise, I didn't release the names of her daughters. Uh, in 2011, she, uh, she'd had numerous contact experiences through her life, essentially, and she decided to hold those back from her daughters because she didn't want to frighten them, uh, rightfully so. But in 2011, she decided that her oldest daughter was old enough to, to take in what she was trying to tell her. So she started talking with her about her experiences, not her other daughter at all. And, and at this, her daughter told her this very, very interesting dream she'd had. She said that a being of some kind came into the house at night time, put her father to sleep, very interesting indeed, and then took her somewhere to do a test. So she was taken somewhere, she said there were other children there, and she was doing some sort of examination, and there were beings there that she didn't recognise. Uh, so the details were hazy, but very, very likely abduction-related. Uh, so Eloise, upon hearing this, asked her to draw a, a drawing of the being that had come to get her to do this test. And uh, this is the drawing that she drew. So you can see this kind of cat-like figure. And Catty is kind of sad-looking face, uh, arms and legs, sort of standing up on his hind legs. Now, there is actually a number of cases out there uh, where feline-type beings are reported. They're very rare compared to, say, cases involving greys or Nordics, uh, humanoids, etc. 
but uh, there are cases out there, and some of you may be familiar with those cases. So I'm not saying this is definitely a screen memory, perhaps it was one of these feline beings. Uh, but then, given the fact that she's a child, and the fact that screen memories occur um, more prevalent in childhood, also later on she had experiences where she saw greys instead of this, these cat people, it stands to reason this was probably a screen memory. Now, even more interesting, uh, soon afterwards, while doing the housework, she came across another drawing that had been done by her younger daughter, who was only four years old at the time. And when she saw the drawing, she was very spooked out by it, because it looked very familiar to what her older daughter had drawn for her. Incidentally, she kept this drawing, uh, she didn't show it to the four-year-old. So she went and asked her, uh, her younger daughter what she'd drawn, and her younger daughter told her it was someone who visited her once, that was what she told her. Isn't that fascinating? So it appears that both, these, uh, both the daughters were essentially being taken, or at least experiencing visitations, if not abductions. There's another uh, rather spooky case. This is uh, another repeat case. So you'll notice that a lot of the cases I'm talking about are repeater cases. And more often than not with contact, um, it's usually repeat experiences rather than an individual experience that just happens and there's nothing else following it. Now there are cases on record like that, of course. But um, more often than not, you find out that the person's had all sorts of experiences going on throughout their life, usually starting around the age of between four and six. Uh, so this case is from Rednor on the outskirts of Birmingham, uh, involved a gentleman. And he, uh, again, in his childhood, again, you'll see the similarities between these totally separate cases already. He had this recurring nightmare in his childhood. Now, in this uh, nightmare, he'd be walking through his local uh, park uh, with kind of copses of trees. Uh, and he'd be on his own, there wouldn't be any else, anybody else present. And all of a sudden, this pack of wolves would emerge from between the trees and essentially sort of snarling wolves, and they'd start coming towards him. He'd try to run away, but he, he couldn't run at full speed, and the wolves would just essentially catch up with him. And at that point, bang, dream ends. That's all, that's all he could remember. Um, interestingly, later on, the wolves actually changed in the dream into something entirely different. Uh, but we'll get back to that in a bit. So remember that case for later on. Okay, next let's have a look at hospitals and doctors' screen memories. So yeah, the beings can sometimes appear as doctors or surgeons, and the craft interiors can sometimes be recollected during an abduction uh, as a, an entire hospital or surgery. And sometimes it's both of those things, uh, and sometimes it's just one, so, so the person might remember a hospital, but then see alien beings there. Um, or sometimes it might be in, entire, so all they can remember is going to a hospital. And there's numerous possible reasons for why this might be the case, uh, and we're going to get more into those later in the talk. So I don't want to, I don't want to lean it too, too much towards any particular explanation at this point. Right, I'm going to go over a fascinating case. Some of you may be familiar with this case. It's an incredible abduction experience from, uh, that occurred in Droidwich. Um, it's, it's a uh, dual abduction, two abduction experiences that happened within the space of a week. Um, and we're going to go into aspects of those abductions now. Uh, it occurred, the, the two abductions occurred in late 2010, but again, this was a repeat case. And after speaking with the lady involved, it turned out she'd had stuff right back to her childhood. But essentially what she'd done is she'd pushed those experiences to the back of her mind. So a lot of the time when people have strange experiences, they're so out of the norm for them that they can't handle them. So what they'll do is they'll just ignore them and they'll just pretend like they never happened because they're just too far out of their normal life. But when we started to, uh, to delve into this in more depth, it turned out that she'd very likely been a uh, contactee since childhood. But I'm going to go into what happened in late 2010 here. So she had these two trigger abduction experiences 
And what I mean by that is these are the experiences that awoken her to the fact that there was something going on in her life that she needed to look into in more depth. Now, in her second abduction experience, she found herself in this room. It had large wood panels all over the walls, and, there's a, and there was a double door in the background with kind of glass windows in, that's what she's drawn there. She found herself lying down on this uh, kind of bench or stretcher of some kind. Uh, she was unclothed, that's her there as a stick figure. Uh, she's unclothed, and she was lying underneath this thin white sheet that was just draped over her uh, from the neck downwards. And she found herself, she was completely paralysed, as a lot of people are during abduction experiences. Uh, I won't go into the reasons for that, as I've got my own views as to why that's the case. Um, but it'll kind of move away from what we're trying to cover here. So she's lying down and she can look around with her eyes and she can move her neck a tiny weeny bit. Off to her right, she can sense, she sees this little chap. Oh, there was also some sort of being standing back here. She's drawn a question mark there because she couldn't lean her head right around to see it. But she sensed that there was this tall being standing behind her left shoulder. And she'd actually experienced that same being standing there in her first abduction experience. We've got a direct link here between, between the two abductions. But she could see this little guy. So to her right was this short doctor chap. He was about four foot high, he had short red hair, he was wearing spectacles, and he had a, a white doctor's, typical kind of doctor's coat on. And he was down there standing next to her, not talking to her. What he did, he reached out his hands over her and held them a short distance above her body. And he starts moving his hands down her body, not touching her, but just moving down over her. And as he goes, she starts to hear a telepathic voice in her mind, so the doctor's mouth is not moving, but she hears him talking to her. And essentially, he's telling her what ailments she has or had in the past. So he moved down over her stomach and said, you used to have a, a stomach ulcer there, but it's, it's gone now. And uh, your back's aching a bit and this sort of thing, because she actually had a bad back at the time when I was talking with her. Now, she was very worried that the being was going to tell her something bad, like you've got cancer or something like that. And, and she actually had a telepathic message in her head saying, don't worry, you don't have cancer. So it's like the being could hear what, what she was thinking and then directly responded to that. So this scan of, uh, of a kind took place. Uh, I mentioned the being behind the shoulder. She performed this scan, and after that, this, the, essentially the experience ends and she, and she wakes up in bed. Uh, now, because of the previous experience that had previously happened, she was very adamant that this was not a nightmare. That it, was, it, was, it felt far more real to her, and she actually woke up her husband, and he was kind of quite dismissive of her experiences. He was just putting down to nightmares and this sort of thing. But she knew it wasn't that. But of course, in, as part of the investigation, actually went around there with a, a hypnotherapist who uh, regressed the lady at her, at her own house. And part of that regression, we of course delved into this experience to see what she came out with. She came out with some really interesting information. What you're going to see now is a snippet from the actual regression transcript, where she starts talking about this short dot chap. It's the actual words there. During her regression, she essentially started to break past this screen memory that the being had going on. There's a man. A man? Yeah, on my right side. He's very pale. He has short red hair. What about the shape of his face? It doesn't seem real. His face doesn't seem right. What makes you tell me that his face doesn't seem real? It's like it wants to fall off. And his arms? What about his arms? They look like normal hands but they change while I'm watching what he's doing. You observe his hands change from normal looking hands to just something with three fingers, normal fingers. No, they seem to be pointed. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? So you can see there with that, 
She's literally like, describing the face of the being like it wants to fall off, literally seeing it like a mask that's slipping away. She realises that the being, the, 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 the projected image of this doctor is not right and she's kind of seeing past it. Now, consciously, she remembered the doctor. She didn't, this is details that only came out during the regression. So she already had a conscious recollection of the doctor, but under hypnosis, she seemed to be breaking past that. Very interesting indeed. Let's have a look at another case here. Back to the location of Bellina in South Wales, I mentioned that she had other experiences. Uh, so soon after being taken away for that test that we talked about previously, her daughter began to develop nosebleeds, uh, a common after effect of contact experiences. Uh, don't always occur, and nor am I suggesting that anybody who has nosebleeds is a contactee. Absolutely not. It's, uh, you know, obviously many kids have nosebleeds anyway. Doesn't mean that they're being taken but it can sometimes be linked with some of the examination procedures that are being done, as, as some of you will know. Um, so she started to mention to her mother doctors who would come for her at night. And when her mum asked her what they looked like, she couldn't remember what they looked like. So even though she couldn't remember their appearance, she was describing them as doctors. Isn't that strange? Um, but when she asked for specific details about what their faces looked like, etc., she couldn't remember. But this has some somewhat similarities to the uh, infamous American case, Whitney Stryber, who uh, many of you will know about, uh, the uh, famous uh, case. Uh, it was actually turned into the film Communion, uh, based on his uh, f uh, famous uh, book of his contact experiences. Now, one of the, Whitney was actually very, very skeptical about the fact that, that he was experiencing contact. He didn't want to believe it. He was like, I'm going mad. This must be something else. This is not what I think, you know, what I think it is. But he started to talk with his son about the experiences. And his son started to refer to little blue doctors who would come into his room at night time and take him away. Now Whitley had seen these same beings himself, and that was one of the things that cemented this in reality to, uh, for him and got him to believe that he was actually experiencing something real. Um, absolutely fascinating. And these little chaps are commonly referred to as blue dwarfs. Uh, they're not often seen. I've dealt with a few cases where they've been reported. They're usually between sort of one and a half foot to two foot high, uh, sometimes extremely frightening to the individual. And they uh, seem to assist, uh, often assist the greys. So people will see greys and these little guys alongside them. And the greys themselves are usually quite short. So these guys are really, really short, but they're quite rare. So there's some examples there of doctors. Uh, next, let's move on to aircraft and pilots. Up and away. So yeah, in cases where a uh, craft is seen up in the sky, uh, the individual can sometimes recall seeing a completely normal aircraft, such as a uh, plane or a helicopter, um, or maybe something else, a hand glider or a microlight. Uh, if direct contact occurs, then the beings can sometimes occur, appear as human pilots, uh, and they may sometimes invite the witness aboard the helicopter or plane in their recollection. Now, there is a number of instances where the aircraft or the pilot scene seem to be kind of vintage, like old-fashioned, like they might see a World War I biplane, or maybe a kind of pilot that looks somewhat similar to this drawing here with the old, uh, the old goggles on the head, not, of course, how pilots dress today. Uh, and that's really interesting, and there might be, uh, there might be various reasons for that. Uh, we'll delve into that. That kind of leans towards one of the potential explanations, but again, we're leaving that to later in the talk, so I don't want to delve too much into that right now. Back to the cases, and you'll be familiar with this. For any of you who have my previous talk, Bista, that Steve mentioned at the start, this is one of his experiences. But you may not remember it, so let's go through it again. And for some of you, this will be the first time hearing this. So the, uh, the Bista case involved a uh, lovely chap, a guy named David Hunt. He was a musician. In actual fact, there, for a while, they had a band called Cosmosis going. 
and a lot of the songs that the band put out were actually themed on his contact experiences and aspects of, of that. And um, it, it was really good. I actually went to see him live a couple of times. I don't think they're going anymore. I think they, uh, I think they split up and went their own separate ways. Uh, but I still keep in touch with David uh, and his friends from time to time. Uh, but at age eight, he lived in Hillingdon, down in, uh, down in the middle of London, uh, very, very suburban area. Uh, and he'd regularly go to this local park on Windsor Avenue uh, with his friend. Uh, the park is still there to this day. Um, it's, um, they, they referred to it as the Elephant Park because it had a climbing frame that was shaped like an elephant, so that was their nickname they gave for it. Um, but it's a triangular-shaped area, um, uh, area with a, a small playground at one end and essentially just open grassy fields. Now, while they were down there, this is the uh, playground down here, for one here at a roundabout and some swings. So they're sitting on the swings, and all of a sudden, um, David witnesses this very strange object appear. He said it was a, a long cylindrical shaped thing. It seemed to be rotating, and at one end were what looked like almost like round radar dishes, almost sticking out, sticking out this top end. It said it reminded him of the telecom tower, essentially, and they were flying along, and, and while uh, completely silently and rotating. Now this thing uh, comes, comes across here, uh, across the centre of the grass and essentially lands vertically and lands about 100 yards in, uh, across the grass. And um, David's not frightened of it because he's had previous experiences to this that I won't go into. So he was already ready for weird stuff going on in his life essentially. Uh, a doorway opens in the bottom of this thing and two pilots emerge just wearing uh, dark shades and, and sort of bomber jackets. And they uh, beckon them over. So him and his friend, they actually approach these, uh, these gentlemen that have come out of this object. And they, the men essentially speak with them, singing the audible, uh, and, and offer to take them for a ride in this strange craft that's behind them. They've just come out of. Now, David was actually up for that, but his friend Matthew was actually quite frightened by, uh, by what was taking place. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Let's be fair. Um, so he didn't want to go. And in, and in the end, David kind of agreed, and they said, OK, we're not, we're not going to go with you. Now, the men didn't kind of grab hold of them and drag them onto it or anything. They just seemed to agree with that. They got back in, door closes, object takes off completely silently, and then essentially zips away into the sky, and it's gone. And then it's left there, and the park on the road is like, what on earth took place? Now, in talking about this, they kind of kept it to themselves. David didn't tell his parents. His friend didn't tell his parents. It was, uh, they, they didn't think they'd believe them, so they just discussed it themselves. But David noticed that in the following weeks after the experience, his friend clammed up more and more, didn't want to discuss it. Now, this is a common after-effect of experiences. Uh, some people find it too hard to, to deal with, so they'll just block it out and pretend like it never happened. and They just want to get on with their lives. So he didn't want to discuss it with him. And after that, David actually moved away from the area. Uh, he moved away from the area, but about, I think it was about sort of eight or nine years later, he was back down in London, uh, just, just visiting for the weekend, and he happened to bump into his old friend, Matthew. And uh, he brought up the experience with him again, because he figured, so long's gone, I can talk about it again with him more openly. When he talked about it with him, he found out that there was a difference in the recollection of what had happened. And this is absolutely fascinating. And David had remembered this strange object, this strange cylindrical-shaped object land. His friend describes it as a helicopter. His friend said he remembered a helicopter landing and two pilots getting out, so he didn't see the craft. Now, what I think probably took place with this is because David was more accustomed to seeing the beings before and everything. It, it led to their difference in the recollection, but that's, that's saying too much again. That's, that's linked more into the second part of the talk, but fascinating. Here's another completely separate case, again involving helicopter. This one's from Swansea. <laughs> there we go. It involves a lady named Kerry. Kerry's, Kerry down here or not? No. 
No, just wanted to check there. Um, so she lived in Katanga in the Belgian Congo uh, in her childhood. Uh, very uh, fascinating place to live in. And back when she was age eight, right back in 1955, she went to Le Col de Serre Primary School. And one day while she was there, a very strange experience or to her recollection took place. What she remembered is it came to the following day, she remembered that on the previous day, a helicopter had landed in the school playground. Right, which doesn't make any sense, of course, because you think, well, surely the other kids will say whatever. But it landed in the school playground, a pilot got out, and it turned out to be one of her neighbours. Now, her, her neighbour actually at the time did actually give helicopter tours for, for tourists around the local area, so that seemed to fit. And uh, he got out and invited her aboard this helicopter. Of course, she's a child, so she's very excited by this. She remembers getting in the helicopter and it taking off and flying around and just looking out the windows and just seeing the, the ground below. Uh, and it seemingly landed at the school to pick her up, just her. Now, she remembers being up in the air, but she doesn't remember the landing, which is interesting. She remembers being and looking out the windows, but she can't remember how she got back down to the ground. Uh, this is where this kind of flashback ended. Now, she told her mother this. she just come out with it and said, oh, he come and got me from the playground, the helicopter. Now, of course, her mum's absolutely furious about this. Storms around next door. What are you doing? And that's ridiculous. And, of course, the neighbour denies it happening because it's completely illogical. It didn't happen. Um, now... Logically, it wouldn't have made any sense for him to have done that. And of course, as I mentioned, there would have been other kids around would have seen it, this sort of thing. Uh, she actually got regressed later on, a number of years later. Now, I didn't see the transcript for this regression, but she informed me that under regression, she described seeing a flying uh, disc-shaped craft with a grey, not a pilot and a helicopter. So it appears that both the, uh, both the craft and the beam was masked in this case by screen memory. Let's move on to fictional characters next. Things get real strange here. So, yeah, sometimes the beings can appear as characters that we know aren't actually real. They're sometimes familiar to the contactee, like it might be a story that they're reading at the time or something, something they've seen from a film. Uh, it, it can sometimes even be cartoon characters that they'll actually see. And you'll actually see an example of that in just a minute. Uh, this one, definitely more prevalent in childhood years. I can't think of any with storybook characters that are kind of from later on. It always seems to be when, they, when they're kids. Um, not always friendly, so sometimes it can be something frightening like a, like a demon or a gremlin or something like that that's going to come to get them. Uh, now this was actually mentioned in the classic Steven Spielberg series, uh, Taken. Hands up, have you seen Taken? Wow, not many of you. Okay, a few of you. Okay, highly recommended. I think it's the best TV series that's ever been put out on the contact phenomena, hands down. It's a 10-part it's a a ten-part TV drama, essentially, spanning right back to Roswell and right up to modern day. Uh, it features a number of families that have contactees amongst them and what happens to them over the generations. It's absolutely stellar entertainment. Really, really good show. Uh, and he, Stephen, um, as many of you all know, has a big interest in the UFO subject, which is why he released Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But he also released Taken to look more into contact. And in that, he included lots of aspects of the phenomena, uh, including screen memories. Now, what you're about to see is a clip from the start of the second episode. Uh, one of the boys of the family is being taken, and he has a screen memory that's linked with a story that he's reading at the time. So let's have a look at that right now.
Absolutely a fantastic representation of a childhood um, uh, screen memory there. Let's go into an actual case next. This is absolutely fascinating, this one. Now, I deal with a lot of cases from around the UK. A lot of the contact experiences I've dealt with from being around the Birmingham area, of course, around the Midlands. Uh, but I deal with cases from anywhere in the world, anybody who contacts me. And over time, uh, word has spread uh, that I'm a good person to come to to talk with about the contact phenomena. So I've dealt with cases from as far wide as Australia. Uh, this is one I investigated right back in 2009, so quite an early case here. And it involved a man who'd, who'd had many experiences of varying kinds throughout his life. And again, they went right back to his childhood. Uh, he wanted to explore his earliest memories in more depth. He was quite interested to know where, they, where things had started for him, how far back these experiences went, because he was aware of some gaps in his memory and the sort of he couldn't come to the UK because it costs a hell of a lot to get across here from, uh, from there, of course. So he arranged to be regressed uh, across in Australia. And afterwards, uh, he came out with the details and I was sent the, uh, the, uh, the recording of the regression, which I then transcribed to include in the case report. Uh, and it involved, when he, when he went back to his childhood years, he started talking about a number of visitations by beings that occurred in his home. And we're going to delve into a particular aspect of that right now. Uh, they just stuck a needle in my ear. Okay, okay. What was that for? Ask them why. A needle in my ear. Stuck a needle in my ear. Who? Little guys with big round heads. They're happy and they're wearing red. Okay. This is crazy. This is crazy. How old are you? Going back to about three. Keep going. Why did they do that? What was the reason? Because they care about me and they like me. They said, this won't hurt, and it did hurt. Okay, why, why were they sticking a needle in your ear? What was that about? It's DNA, it's not, it's not blood. What's it for? What's it going to do? They're checking me, that's what they're doing. We're just checking to see how you're going. It won't hurt, it's okay. What did you do at school today? Ah, needle, it's a needle. It's very skinny, very little, can't hardly see it. What are you doing this for? Oh, we're just checking you. We care about you. We're just checking you. 
It's okay, we do this all the time. When all the time? Oh, when you're asleep. Uh, he's making himself look like Casper and Elmer Fudd. Why do they do that? Well, we're playing, you're playing games with them. I'm allowed to do that. Do they like that? Not sure. They don't want me to worry. Elmer Fudd had me fooled. You know their eyes aren't always black. What other colours are there? I was looking at Elmer Fudd and all of a sudden it's a big head and the eyes were down here and they weren't covered in black. They were not like cartoon eyes, but they're hard to describe. <laughs> Isn't that amazing there? So in that regression, he's going back to these childhood visitations. These were all short little guys who come for him and were performing some kind of examination in his actual house. So it appeared to be there instead of a border craft. But they actually changed himself, or seem, seemingly changed himself, into Casper uh, and Elmer Fudd off, uh, off Bugs Bunny. Now, isn't it interesting how similar both these characters look to a great, with the, with the bald head and the, and the large eyes, and obviously um, Casper being quite pale in, in colour as well. Uh, very interesting indeed. And uh, you may already see the links there, but there might be multiple explanations for what's going on. So uh, let's move on, we'll get back to that in a bit. Here's another case. This is a repeat case from Leeds. It involves a lovely chap named Simon, who I've seen at a number of conferences. I Simon, you here or not? No, okay. Um, so from age three, he began to experience uh, visitations in his bedroom, um, and they come to him at night, as often these things do. By the way, it isn't always that. Any kind of misconceptions you may have heard about something that always happens with contact is absolute nonsense. There is nothing that always happens with contact. So even though a lot of the time visitations do occur in the person's bedroom at night time, sometimes they can occur in broad daylight, sometimes they can occur when the person's out of the house and out walking, or even in their vehicle, of course. So he'd wake up frightened, he didn't know why. So he'd come around and he'd sense there was something wrong, there was something happening, but he couldn't see anything at first. He'd get really spooked out and he'd hide underneath the bed covers when this happened. He knew that something was there in the room. Uh, and in the end, he'd have to take a look. It was kind of like the fear just build up and up and up until he peeped. So he'd, he'd lift up the side of the covers. And alongside the bed would be a, be a being peering in at him, uh, standing quite close to the bed. And it had this uh, very wide kind of oval-shaped face, uh, olive-coloured skin, although he says that that could have been due to the shadow in the room, maybe making the being appear darker than it actually was. Interestingly, he said the skin looks quite rubber-like, uh, which has been reported before by other people as well who've seen uh, grey-type beings. It had a black patch over its eye, like a pirate patch over one eye. And isn't that really interesting? Just, just over its left eye. And he gave him no explanation for why that was the case. Um, but we'll, we'll look into that. Figures of authority next. Pretty creepy image there. Potentially of the men in black from a case I'd imagine. So in some cases, the witness remembers the beings as actual humans, uh, humans who exude authority, like a soldier or a police officer. Um, so yeah, as I say, um, examples there are the examples firemen, and sometimes just smartly dressed individuals, like a man in a smart, smart black suit. And this may in fact be responsible for some of the men in black sightings that people report seeing. So we're not necessarily always dealing with actual men in black, and that's a whole different subject in itself. Um, what we mean by that is it might be a screen memory and the being might be appearing just as a, a man in a, in a black suit. And some of those incidents can also be, uh, may also be the result of my labs, not screen memories. Uh, how do we know what a my lab is? There you go, a couple of you. Okay, so my lab stands for military abduction. And these are quite rare. They do occur in the UK. In actual fact, that drawbridge case that I talked about, there was another experience involving the lady and one of her daughters. 
that appeared to be in my lab. Uh, they occur, they're more prevalent in America. Now what happens with these experiences is people will have an abduction experience, they'll find themselves aboard a craft, they may well see greys uh, or other types of beings, but they'll also see what appears to be soldiers working with them, people in military uniform. Now there might be numerous explanations for that, we might be having screen memories going on, or it may insinuate that the, um, that the military are in some ways working with the beings towards common agendas and assisting them uh, with, with certain abductions that are taking place. Now, I don't want to kind of draw that conclusion too, uh, too drastically. It's, it's a very, very complex subject um, and it, it might be numerous things, but that's obviously one of the insinuations with it. So, uh, yeah, it might be that screen memories occurring of soldiers, not necessarily in my lab, so it, it, can, be, it can go either way with it. So let's have a look at a, uh, an exact case here involving soldiers. We're back to Bista here uh, with David Hunt. So uh, between the age of six and, six and nine, uh, he would see what appeared to be several American soldiers emerge from his bedroom walls. He knows that because they had the American flag on, on, on the uniform. They'd emerge from his bedroom wall, they'd walk around the edge of the bed, and they'd stand in a line alongside his bed, just basically staring blankly down at him. Uh, now he'd, he'd be very frightened by this, this is a drawing he's done, that's him lying there in his bed and this is the, uh, one of the figures and he's drawn this, that's a long arrow going around there along to where they would go and stand next to the bed. Uh, he was very frightened, in these experiences he was too frightened to shout out, he doesn't think he was paralysed, he would just lie there really still because he was so frightened, he didn't know what was going to happen and he, he didn't dare shout out for his parents and in the end as, as is regularly reported, he would seemingly black out against his will. And when he came round, it'd be morning time and the soldiers would be gone. Um, now, it's probable screen memories are actually the fact that they're, they're emerging from the bedroom wall. Uh, I've dealt with a lot of visitation experiences where the beings will actually do that, will actually step out from light from a solid wall. Uh, so they don't always enter the bedroom from the door. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they'll seemingly come through from outside the room and enter. Uh, but other times they'll seemingly just step straight out, which links back to the potential for sort of multidimensional capabilities there. Back to the uh, Rachel's case from Erdington, so you can see we're jumping around, we're jumping back to these uh, previous cases. I did say there were repeaters. This is a particular ex abduction experience she had. It was the mid-90s and she'd gone on holiday uh, to Scotland with her, with her partner. And while she was camping in Scotland on the campsite, um, she had an abduction experience. She essentially woke up in the middle of the night in the tent. Um, her husband was fast asleep alongside her. There was this, she saw this growing white light just getting brighter and brighter outside the tent. Now at first she thought it was a vehicle that was turning up late to the campsite just driving around, but there was kind of no, no sound of that, there was no engine noise. Uh, but she did, what she did hear was this strange whirring noise. It almost looked like, uh, felt like the noise a helicopter would make a distance, but there was no air currents, so there was nothing blowing the tent around even though she could hear these strange sounds. Uh, she kind of peeked outside the tent, she had a look, she kind of pulled open the tent and outside she could see the silhouettes of two men essentially standing there with a white light coming from behind them. They seemed to be wearing dark Brahma jackets and dark trousers and they were just standing there outside the tent. Um, she got out of the tent, completely voluntary, they didn't have to pull her out of the tent. She was actually intrigued by what was going on, she thought maybe she was in trouble or it was somebody from the campsite and something had happened. So she gets out and the men essentially start just checking her up and down, almost like a security light when you go to the airport. She looks over to her right, and there's another chap there, somebody else from the campsite, another man, and he's just looking at her, bewildered, he's like, what on earth is this? And all of a sudden, she actually watches him get abducted. She said a, a white beam of light seemed to come down from above, she couldn't see any craft, 
she just sort of wipe in the light, envelop the man, and then he starts to lift off the ground. Next second she knows, bang, there's white lights all around her, and she feels her body start to lift. At this point, memory ends. Her next memory, she's inside this, uh, sorry, I'll go back there. She's inside this uh, dull room, a dull metallic room. So it was quite rounded, it was quite constrictive, uh, warm. Um, it's really, later on, she moved from that same holding room to another location, but that's getting more into, it's moving away from the screen memory part of this, so. Uh, but yeah, that's all, if you want to read more in, in, in depth about what happened next in that abduction, it's in the case report, like, uh, like everything else is that we're discussing tonight. So let's have a look at clowns and carnivals, and I do apologise if any of you have got a bit of a phobia of clowns. Uh, I tried to find the creepiest picture of a clown I could possibly find in the entire world. It's a bit of a talk. Uh, so there's numerous cases on record where the, uh, the beings very creepily appear as clowns or carnival staff. It might be because of their pale features and it reminds people of a clown. Maybe. But that's getting into the explanations. It can sometimes lead to an ongoing phobia of clowns and sometimes a porcelain doll specifically. Um, so obviously a lot of people are kind of quite creeped out by porcelain dolls, which is why they use them in horror films and things. But it can sometimes, the contactees have experiences with beings, can sometimes lead to ongoing phobias throughout their life. Uh, it's one of many after effects of contact. Uh, the craft can sometimes be recollected as circus trucks. Really interesting. So not even something up in the air. A ground vehicle, like a lorry with circus stuff in. Now amazingly, this was actually referenced again by Steven Spielberg. We're going to go back now with another clip from Taken for you, where you'll see that exact thing. So this is the same boy that you saw in the previous clip, now older. Uh, it's interesting that he's uh, shown an uh, abduction occurring there in broad daylight, 
but you can see in that that there's nobody else around at the time, which uh, I've dealt with cases just like that where usually it would be a busy location, but for whatever reason at the point when they're abducted there's nobody else around. Really interesting aspects to the subject. So uh, yeah, back to the case from Redknoll that we talked about with the uh, with the wolves, the dream of the wolves, this recurring nightmare he was having. After a while, the dream changed, and instead of seeing wolves, he actually saw a giant floating jester's face. Believe it or not, this is a drawing he's done of it. This is the pointed hat with the uh, the bell on the end of the hat here, the eyes, uh, big big grin here, the chin, the nose, and that's what he saw in this dream. Asked him to to draw to draw the face for me. Uh, and you can see the similarity to uh, Punch and Judy, there's a picture I found online of Punch, almost exactly the same. Uh, and it might have been that he'd seen Punch and Judy as a child and maybe that's why it was representing itself in that way, we don't know. Uh, the rest of the dream remained identical. The, uh, this big face would essentially float after him and give chase, he couldn't run away and eventually it would catch up with him and he'd black out. So it's really interesting that it, that it changed into something else that, that we know is linked with contact and, and so you've got these two different things occurring with that uh, one case. Let's have a look at uh, direct family members next. So yeah, there, there is some occasions where the beings they can appear as something familiar to the individual, uh, like maybe one of their own relatives or a close family friend, somebody they recognise. Uh, and it can also sometimes be a pet, uh, so there are cases linking with the, uh, something familiar and the, and the animals thing at once. Uh, the interior of the craft can also be familiar to the individual sometimes, as I mentioned, like maybe their own, their own home or another building that they were used to going down to, something they recognise. Let's go back to Droidwich. This time I'm going to take you back to the first of the two trigger abduction experiences. So you've seen it in reverse. This one happened about five or so days before the second one, so both within the space of a week. In this one, she uh, found herself free-floating in this very, very dark area. Uh, she was completely naked this time up in mid-air, uh, largely paralysed, she could move her, move her neck a, a little bit, but not, not too much. There was this really odd aspect of the case here. She was surrounded by these yellow glowing grid lines, almost around her like Tron or something like that. It was like glowing yellow squares intersecting the entire her viewpoint in all directions around her. Obviously she could only see kind of above her and after the, by turning her eyes she could look a bit like either side and that's it. She couldn't see downwards. But yeah, they were everywhere. Now I've looked for other cases where this exact thing has been reported, and so far I haven't found another case involving that particular aspect. Uh, that's not to be suspicious of, by the way. I wouldn't say if there was an aspect that doesn't occur in other cases, that means it can't have happened, it's just a made up thing. I think that's, um, that would be jumping to, to conclusions too easily. Um, it's a very, very complex thing, and there are lots of, lots of different things can occur with the subject, although there's often similarities. With this first experience, she had this examination by these short beings. She could feel the presence of these short beings either side of her. They were out of sight, but she knew they were there. Kind of like if you stand in the middle of a crowd with your eyes closed, you can still sense that there's people around you like that. And she, again, she could sense that up behind her left shoulder, there was this taller being. Why she knew it was taller, who knows? Um, the beings performed this examination on her, which was actually quite traumatic to her at the time, and they were touching the body like this. And um, at one point, the being behind her actually calmed her down by putting its hand on top of her head, and she felt this wave of calm go through her body. Um, that's kind of moving away from what we're discussing here, but just put that in there. Um, in the distance, all of a sudden, this door opens up, this long rectangular door off to the left. You can see it kind of looking down across the room from her. And standing in the door is her oldest son. I, when I actually went round to visit the family, I met her son, really lovely chap. 
quite a tall lad, in, uh, at least six and a half foot high. <laughs> Dwarfed me, I was like, wow, <laughs> really tall. And he was there aboard the craft, and he was standing in this doorway. And the lady was actually puzzled as to why he was there, what he was doing there, why he wasn't coming and helping her out or interacting in any way, he was just standing there. Now, under aggression, when we aggressed her, she, this is what she remembered consciously that her son had been aboard the craft yet. Uh, she said that she spoke with her son, the son had no recollection of the experience at all. Um, when we regressed her, we took her back to this experience. Most of the details remained the same, because she remembered them consciously already, but she actually came out with different details regarding what was in the doorway. There's something standing in the light. It looks like my son. Your son is standing in the light. It's too tall. It's too tall for your son. Yeah. How tall is your son? About six foot five. How tall is this thing standing in front of you? Seven, seven feet, eight feet? He has the features and the build of your son, is that correct? No, he's very skinny. He doesn't have clothes on. Now, isn't this interesting? Just in that bit, you'll see towards the start of that, uh, the wording, she's describing it as a son. And then as it goes on, she kind of, her brain kind of realizes it's not a son. He has the features and the build, no, he's very skinny. How does he look facially? His face looks soft. He doesn't scare me. He's talking, but not with his mouth. I can hear him, but I don't know what he's saying. He's, wait he's wanting them to hurry. He wants to know why I'm still here. He has big eyes, they're black, and he looks kind. As soon as, as, soon as the lady came out from her aggression, we got to draw this being that she'd seen, and this is what she'd drawn. I don't know how well you can see that, it's quite, um, it's quite faded in the light, but essentially, you can see the, uh, most of the head here with these black teardrop-shaped eyes, very, very long, slender body, almost like a thin skeleton. Essentially, it was a very tall, grey being. Now, most of the time when people describe greys, you usually see them as three and a half foot, four foot high, but sometimes I'll describe these very tall ones. And you can sometimes get cases where both are seen at once, and the tall ones sometimes kind of stand at the back, almost like they're overseeing proceedings. Maybe some sort of hierarchical structure going on with that, uh, but that would be assuming possibly too much, but it's interesting. Let's go back to what I've described as silhouettes, which is the last type of screen memory uh, before we go for a break. Um, what I mean by this is essentially that there's cases on record where the beings have been seen quite closely to the individual, where they should be able to see them clearly. They should be able to see their facial features, what they're wearing or whatever, but they appear like black cardboard cutouts with no distinguishing features. And I don't mean just because the room's dark or because of the lighting coming from behind them. I mean, literally, they should be able to see them and they can't, uh, they're almost edited out. Um, so it should be, at least be able to make out certain details like maybe the shape of their sort of darker eyes or the nose mouth. Now this is a bit confused with what's described as shadow beams. Now shadow beams moves into areas of the paranormal. Uh, again, there's, there's very, very definite links between the paranormal and uh, contact. So many people who experience contact will also have uh, experiences that you'd usually put down to something like ghosts or poltergeist type activity. And quite often they can describe seeing these things that we commonly call shadow beings or sometimes shadow people. Uh, they're essentially humanoid forms that are kind of almost like black smoke. Um, and I've, I've got loads of cases on record where those things have been reported. Now it's possible that they're actually alien beings in disguise appearing in that way for whatever reason. Or they might be something else entirely, something that's maybe being drawn in because the person is experiencing contact, some kind of link like that. Uh, there's numerous explanations which I'm not going to go into detail on now because, again, it moves outside of what we're discussing. There's other times that the body of the figure is clear, but the face is either in shadow or blur. This is really more fascinating, so it's not like the whole of it. They can actually see its body clearly, but then when they look up at the face, the face is either blank or 
actually edited almost looks like fuzzed out, like, like the brain's kind of editing out the facial features. Really interesting. Now, here's some examples of this. This is three separate cases, none of which we've gone over yet. Okay, so a case in Leicester, a case in Henley Arden, and a case in Huddersfield. I don't know how well you can see those, but it depends on what angle you're looking at. Um, this one's obviously the easiest one to see out of the three um, because you've filled it in. Uh, so this, this is the edge of a bed. So this lady saw it really, really close when she was seven years old, you say, and it was right there appearing above the side of the bed. Now she'd clearly better see its face that close to her, but she can't. Now what the middle one shows, it shows a number of beings in a row. There's four of them in a row, and uh, one of them, this one here, you can probably just about make that out, is actually holding a baby. It's actually holding a, a hybrid baby. Um, which is kind of half human, half alien baby. And that links into other areas of the subject, as uh, many of you will know about the, um, about the hybrid programme. Again, it's far too big to discuss, but you can ask me any questions you like on it later on. Uh, the Leicester case is, again, very similar. It's very, very similar to that right picture, just as Dan filled it in so you can't see it too clearly. There's three figures in a row, essentially, all completely blank, uh, standing in a row. So you can see they're completely separate, independent cases where they're all reporting very, very similar things. Really fascinating, eh? So these are all the different types of screen memories that are going on. Uh, we've gone over them and I've shown you some different case details. And in the next part of the talk, we're going to start delving into why they might be occurring. Hello everybody. Hope you enjoyed that break. Uh, in part two, uh, we're now going to look at the different potential explanations for what's going on with screen memories. Now some of you may already have a kind of viewpoint. It might be a viewpoint you brought along with you tonight and you may already sort of know all about screen memories and be thinking, yes, it's happening because of such and such. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, I don't want to trounce any of these views. They're all kind of valid in their own way, as you'll see. And it might be multiple things that's happening, but uh, one thing's for sure, it's uh, pretty complex. So let's move on with uh, part two explanations for screen memories. What is going on? So screen memories, they're gonna be one of two things. They're either going to be something happening naturally, or they're going to be something that are being done on purpose as part of that contact experience. Uh, nice one. Uh, so let's have a look. We've got two sides of this, unintentional. Um, first of all, screen memory is down to the trauma of the situation. Something called archetypes, which many of you won't have heard of, maybe all of you won't have heard of. We'll go into that a bit and also altered perception or chemical changes in the brain. So there's the different potential uh, unintentional explanations for screen memories. On the intentional side, we've got something called a memory overlay and actual physical shape-shifting going on. So these are all the different things we're going to look at. But let's start with this, our first potential explanation. Screen memories naturally occur as a result of the trauma of the situation. So this is of course the scientific viewpoint we're going right back now towards what I was talking about at the start uh, with, the, with the paper on screen memories. That various neurologists have highlighted the element of psychological trauma underpinning the screen memory phenomena as, as mainstream science uh, understands screen memories. Uh, there's a couple of quotes. Uh, the construction of the screen memory turns on the balance between memory and denial the blocking of an unpleasant event, thought or perception, is facilitated if some harmless but associated object can be substituted for the unpleasantness itself. The ego searches for memories that can serve as screens for the unpleasantness behind, which is thereby removed from consciousness. 
Uh, and that's a quote from Arso Fenchel in another paper called The Psychoanalytic Theory of Neurosis, which was released right back in 1945. Uh, the second quote is from our good friend Sigmund Freud from his original paper. Uh, they may be considered essentially defensive in nature. Their illusory aspect tends to infect all remembering, which thus may always be suspected of having a screen function. I'm talking just straight up plain sentences, can they? But uh, yeah, essentially what they mean by that is that the trauma of the situation is leading to the screen memories occurring. So the trauma contact. Well, contact experiences, of course, can be extremely bizarre. Uh, people see non-human entities, very, very strange, unusual surroundings they're not used to. Often little to no communication from the beings as to what's going on and why they're doing this stuff. Uh, there's various procedures that can occur, uh, medical procedures, sometimes those procedures can hurt uh, or certainly be uh, very frightening and involve kind of instruments and this sort of thing. So it's altogether very uh, generally a, tra a traumatic experience. That's not always the case. So despite the fact that some contact experiences may be viewed in a positive light, a lot of the time they are quite nightmarish um, and there are some people out there who have learned to accept their contact experiences and view them more like an extended family. They view the beings more like a family members that are coming for them uh, and they've gained an understanding of what's happening to them. Sometimes that can lead to deep communication from the beings themselves. Uh, so false memories may be recreated by the mind during these experiences to help understand something or overcome the fear of, of what's going on. Now, it's true that screen memories are more common in childhood, yes. So maybe these experiences are more traumatic as a child because um, as a child they haven't looked into uh, the idea of there being other, other beings out there in space and this sort of thing. So maybe that leads to a higher probability of screen memories occurring because they're more frightened by them. Uh, and then later on they learn to accept them because they, they're viewing them with an adult mind, maybe. And sometimes the screen memories, are, of course, are something frightening. So we looked at the Rednell case where the man saw a, uh, a number of wolves coming out of him, a pack of wolves. So they, they had a, the screen memory itself was quite frightening in nature. And then you've got these authoritative figures showing up from time to time. So are the memories of these authoritative figures down to the control being exerted by the beings in these, in these situations? So therefore, the mind implants a, uh, a policeman or a soldier kind of forcing them to, to do certain things, uh, just maybe. We're going to look now at something called reminiscence. Another picture of Van Alba. So in some cases, the screen memory place, replacing the being specifically is quite evocative of the actual appearance. So for example, I gave the hospitals and doctors. Now, what we do know from uh, countless contact cases on record is more often than not, the interior of craft is a very, very clinical, clean environment. There's usually uh, not much kind of furnishings, this sort of thing. And that maybe that reminds the brain of a, of a, of a clinical doctor's surgery or a hospital. Uh, and, and also they can be lying down on a bench a lot of the time. So maybe they think of, I'm lying down in a hospital bed. So therefore they see a hospital and doctors. Uh, we talked about the Bissett case. Both the witnesses saw these pilots with these dark shades. Now, were the dark sunglasses they were wearing actually their eyes, they were seeing the black being's eyes, greys, and uh, therefore superimposed sunglasses on their faces. Uh, in the uh, Leeds case, uh, with the pirate, again, black, black eye patch over its eye, were its large black eyes reminiscent of a pirate to him as a child, and therefore he saw it with a pirate patch on one of its eyes.
Uh, and of course, you've got the similarity of an owl's face to a grey, especially barn owls. Uh, the pale feathers with these dark eyes in the middle. And uh, just a, an example, there we go. Maybe it's changing to a grey, so you can see how similar that looks. And uh, baby barn owls uh, look extremely alien in, indeed. Um, now many of you won't have seen uh, this before, but I'm going to show you a video of what baby barn owls look like. Terrifying. <laughs> Uh, so because of, because of that of their feathers, they're just like really small and thin. Um, just, and you can see how that looks like, beings standing up like grey beings, really interesting. I've actually seen that video being put out there as an, an alien video. Alien video in Mexico, it's just like, no, it's baby owls. But, you know, the internet's full of nonsense, isn't it? Okay, so next let's have a look at Pavidolia. This is the tendency for incorrect perception of the stimulus of uh, an object or a pattern or something. Uh, meaning known to the observer so that they can see something in random patterns. Uh, it's derived from the Greek words para, which is alongside, and idolon, which is an image or form. Uh, and it's a subcategory of something known as apophenia, which is a tendency to mistakenly perceive connections and meanings between unrelated things. And uh, it's commonly believed this is down to the evolution of the human brain and just how intelligent we are as a species that we see. Uh, it's, a, it's actually one of the markings of consciousness, the fact that we can recognise meaningful shapes out of uh, abstract things. Um, now, there's some very, very good examples of this. It's very common to see faces or figures in, in random collections in light and shadow. And this is responsible for a lot of the uh, images supposedly showing either ghosts or aliens that are available online. Uh, I've regularly been sent images where people are saying, can't you see the alien being standing there? And there's literally nothing there. It's just that their, their mind is seeing a, a face spoon through the trees or whatever. And I'm not saying that all of them are pareidolia, by the way. You know, some of them might be genuine photographs. I'm just saying that a lot of the time, pareidolia is very likely. It used to be viewed as a sign of psychosis, so when people uh, described having pareidolia, they used to think that they were actually uh, going mad. But it's now considered completely normal, and I can guarantee that every single one of us has had uh, numerous uh, times where you've seen pareidolia throughout your life. Uh, one very well-known example is, of course, the man in the moon. So, we, obviously, the, uh, the, the face there. Um, it's just a combination of light and dark. It's just different, different rock patterns on the, on the moon, essentially. But, um, but the human brain perceives it as a face, and that's how we get the man in the moon. It's not actually there, of course. And here's some other great examples of, of pareidolia to show you. Now, this is a very, very famous one. Some of you may have seen this before. Now, I'm sure you can see, clear as day, the, uh, the figure here. Can't you? The bearded man with his nose and his eyes. You see his hair coming down there. I'm sure you can all see that pretty clear. It's a, it's a, now, this is obviously the, uh, it's an old-fashioned picture. It's quite old, so it's degraded quite a lot. But Seems clear as day, doesn't it? That's not a face. Uh, what if I was to tell you that's a baby sitting on a man's knee? Tell me you can see that. I can see that. You can see it now. That's it's got a bonnet on, that's correct. That's the baby's bonnet on his head. That's his face. That's his arm coming down. And it's sitting on this man's knee. <laughs> Isn't that wild? But even even though you know that now, it still looks like a face. As soon as I see that, I see the big face. Some people say it looks a bit like Jesus. Really, really interesting. Absolutely very, very powerful pareidolia. Here's another one. It's a cloud. It's just a cloud, nothing else. 
but you can obviously see the face across here, the eyes and the nose, the mouth and everything. Very effective. Another very creepy one. This is uh, another kind of quite vintage shot. So in the picture you can see this woman standing by this bush and there's this, what appears to be some horrific skeletal figure grabbing her shoulder. You can see its arm coming down here, its other arm up here in the air. You can see its screaming face here and its body. There's nothing there. It's not there at all. It's just a bush. It's just light and dark in that bush behind her. But the brain perceives it as a, as a figure reaching out and grabbing her shoulder. Isn't that terrifying? Um, it's a very, very powerful paradoidia. It is not a ghost photograph, it's just a bush. Don't know where the Here's another one. It's an elephant. Just an elephant. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Just an elephant's here. But straight away you see it. Even, even, if I, even if I took that red ring off there, you'd be like, there's a face on this here. It's just as clear as day, isn't it? And uh, yeah, no prize if forgetting what that looks like. <laughs> Move on from that. So yeah, it's paradoidal. Uh, so it's, it's actually linked with uh, something known as the Rorschach test, which uh, some of you have heard of before. This is a psychometric uh, examination of pareidolia. And in this test, it's named after his creator, the Swiss psychologist Herman Rorschach. So I've come up with it. It's a psychological test where the, uh, the, the patient, the person being examined, they're shown a random collection of ink blots and they're told to, to tell, them, uh, tell the, um, the analyst what they can see in the ink blots. Uh, what, what things are appearing. And this is a means of analysing, apparently analysing their personality traits and their emotional state. Uh, it's controversial the best, as some scientists say that you can't. That's a very famous example of the Rorschach test, so yeah, what do you see in that? So if you look at the different patterns and shapes, you may come up with all sorts of things uh, in that image that you think you can see. Uh, and no, I'm not going to analyse you and tell you what your personality is based on what you can see. It's just there for an example. And now for something completely different. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. So there we go, isn't that fascinating, eh? Who saw the gorilla, by the way? Who had seen it before, and who knew that the gorilla was going to appear? So probably the same people who didn't see it the first time around. Come on, Ona. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful, isn't it? It is pretty powerful. So this is something known as selective attention. 
This is the process of focusing on a particular object uh, in, in the local environment for a period of time, and the brain's focusing on it. Uh, the attention is a limited resource, our attention, we can't, we can't take in everything that's going on around us. So the brain automatically filters out what it considers to be unimportant details in the, in the surroundings. Uh, there's two models for this uh, uh, that kind of conflicting scientific viewpoints. One's called the spotlight model, and the other one is the zoom lens model. Uh, with the spotlight, there's a focal point in which things are viewed clearly. There's a fringe around that where things are kind of slightly viewed, partially seen, uh, and, and then the outsides of that, the margin, where things are missed, anything that's within the margin. Uh, and then you've got the zoom lens, which is where the brain is able to increase or decrease the size of our focus, but the more that we focus on, it reduces the speed of processing, taking it longer for our brain to take in the information. Uh, and uh, it's argued over which two of those are right, maybe it's both at once. So, yeah, while neither reminiscence, paranoia, nor selective attention are going to be entirely responsible for screen memories, they may all play a part in determining what is or isn't recollected. And they're all linked with that, with that viewpoint that there's something going on in the brain uh, making these things naturally. Let's have a look at our next explanation, shall we? Screen memories are naturally derived from something known as archetypes. That's what are archetypes. Uh, archetypes are universal images or symbols that are apparently derived from the collective unconscious. Now, what I mean by that is that there's innate knowledge that is supposedly passed down through the generations from our evolution, so information that we know in our brains from birth that hasn't been taught us as a baby, um, inherited, essentially. Uh, it's a theory proposed by another Swiss psychoanalyst called Carl Jung, there he is on the right, and uh, archetypes, they might affect the conscious experiences or recollection of, of experiences, essentially. Uh, here's one of his quotes. Uh, These images must be thought of as lacking in solid content, hence as unconscious. They only acquire solidity, influence, and eventual consciousness in the encounter with empirical facts. That was a quote he made right back in 1928. So there's a number of different archetypes that are widely known about and two of the most well-known recurring archetypal images are what's known as the trickster and the shadow. Now this is really interesting because you've seen in part one, the two of the types are clowns and then uh, what I've termed silhouettes. Um, so let's have a look at these in a bit more depth. First of all, you've got the trickster, a character in a story who exhibits a great degree of intellect or secret knowledge and uses this to play tricks on people, kind of like the god Loki. Uh, and, the, and it looks very much like Punch again now, exactly like the Graham Rednall reported seeing during his experiences. Then you've got the shadow, uh, one's dark side, aspects that exist but which one does not acknowledge or which one does not identify. So I'm not saying that screen memories are caused by archetypes, so no. But do they play a factor, do, these, uh, do this thing that's been passed down innately, if archetypes exist? It's a very controversial subject, and many scientists don't believe that archetypes are actually a thing. 